Stay hungry, stay foolish. Innovation Show. It's a huge pleasure to welcome Jerry Canali, CEO and founder of Tweak to the Show. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Great to be here, Eden. Thank you. So we might just jump into the story because your story is fascinating and it goes right back to childhood, I suppose, where you grew up in a very entrepreneurial background. It'd be great to tell our audience about that, Jerry. I grew up with my three brothers and my parents in a small house in the in the centre of Tralee, and that was the place that my parents ran their business from. They were photojournalists working for the Irish and international media. They shot still pictures and they shot television pictures for uh, for RT, BBC, ITN and people like Pathé News. So it was a really electric atmosphere in our home. There was always some sort of a story going on. There was always a chase in the corner or kitchen. There was a telex machine and uh, as kids... Uh, we uh, we had to use it to send uh, shot lists and captions and so on to the newspapers and news agencies around the world. In the front room, there was a wire, there were two wire photo machines, and uh, there was always the buzz of a big story. And my parents were, I guess, exotic, bohemian, and uh, fun people, <laughs> and they they lived hard, they played hard, and you know they were they were real players in in, in the news business and. What I learned from them was the fact that you know you work can be fun, you know, and nothing is impossible and. I think they taught me more than anyone else that you can really turn your own dreams and ideas into reality if you work hard. It's brilliant. I can just imagine it like you were essentially growing up in a startup environment. Absolutely. It was like an apprenticeship for myself and my brothers. And, uh, you know, we were we were out on, on uh, news jobs. We were sent out on our own at 11 or 12 years of age to, to shoot basketball matches for the Echo and for the Examiner. And uh, I remember one day, uh, uh, you know, I was... I was and with my mother going to a, a story in Castle Island, I think I was about nine years old, and I said, Ma, what's, what's the story today? And she said, it's a murder. Someone killed someone else at a pub. So that, was, <laughs> that was my first murder scene, and I was at quite a few of them after that. But it was, um, I guess we, we just took it in our stride, and uh, our parents were and still are champions in our eyes. They were, they were people who turned uh, something uh, out of nothing, and... More so when they, uh, in 1974, when they they launched uh, Kerry's Eye, my parents, Podrick and Joan, uh, my brother Podrick, Brendan, Kerry and myself, and we started a, what I think is the most successful provincial newspaper in Ireland in that year with almost no resources. It was just the six of us. It was originally a free newspaper and it became, you know, it has become a great success and still run by my brothers today. You know, it was a powerful lesson in, in making something happen. Yeah, and I had a pure passion. And one of the things I caught, you know, I really captured from everything I've read about you is that your your parents really focused on the product at the end of the day. So they weren't, they never went into this to go, we're going to sell and create a successful business. They were like, we're going to create the best damn product we can, the best photos we can. We're going to invest in the equipment and we'll have the best equipment ahead of anyone else so we can produce the best quality products. And that seems to really bedded into your brain, and you've carried that on from strength to strength. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. I mean, my uh, my parents are both very much long term players. They were pre- prepared to get into debt for equipment. My father had uh, incredible Ariflex cameras and Nagra recorders and new recorders uh, to produce really great work for television and for stills. Not only that, but I suppose they're great believers in craft and in, in learning your craft properly and doing it right. 
And, you know, I think that competence, sort of valuing competence is something that's, that's really important. And I learned it young. I learned it in my teens. By the time I was in my early 20s, I was pretty competent as a photojournalist and learned lots of other things as well along the way. It's sort of uh, when you're out selling advertising and collecting accounts at sort of 14 or 15 years of age, uh, <laughs> you know, you do learn a lot unknown to yourself. I suppose yeah. it's the 10,000 rule. Absolutely, yeah, that that rang true. Actually, that you had enough time to build up those ten thousand hours because you don't escape without getting that into your brain, and your brain must shape differently. And you brought that on. And I'd love to tell our audience a bit about the Stockbite story and how that evolved out of the seed, I suppose, that was planted as a young child. Yeah, well, I suppose I left the family business in 1981 to start business as a freelance photojournalist, taking up from where my parents let off. They were busy running Kerry's Eye. And I, I took up the baton with the with the Irish and International uh, News Organisations. And um, then I, I guess developed it into, when the Macintosh came out in 1984, developed it into a, a pre-press company. And we uh, were doing a lot of digital services. I learned about digital scanning and digital production of, of printed items very early. And one of the things that struck me when we were doing that was that uh, a lot of our clients were publishers, creative agencies, and uh, design companies, and they were licensing pictures from picture agencies in the UK. It was very hard because they were analog pictures. You'd want to have a picture of somebody working in a business environment, and they would send a bundle of transparencies. That's how they would make their selection. It was really low-tech. So I understood digital, digital. I understood photography, and I reckon that you know it was a really obvious thing to make really good stock images available for a fair price and license them just like you would software. Uh, you're not charged an extra fee every time you use Microsoft Word. Word. And I thought it was a, uh, it would be a good business proposition to offer 100 really good stock images scanned and ready to use on a page for $300. So that's what we did in, in 1996. We put the, uh, put the work together. I invested every, every cent that I have and I had and some sense that I didn't have. I got the Stockbite product together, launched it at Macworld in San Francisco in January 97 and thankfully it became a great success. Yeah, and, and how long did you run it, Jerry, before it was acquired? How, how long did that journey go on for? The business was sold in, in April 2006. We just had 28 people on the staff. We had a, twice or three times that number in terms of contractors in various parts of the world. And it was like a little movie company, I guess. Uh, we were creating productions all over the world, uh, executing creative ideas and getting them out to the market through we had about 130 partners uh, in 70 countries. And they were representing our, our brand that we also sold directly all over the world. The thing I need to emphasize, because a lot of us forget this, is the first thing, your family, and you told, you told us about your family really going after the craft and learning that craft really well. That was back a long time ago, before the internet really had taken out. There was no YouTube. There was no, the things we take for granted today, like if you want to learn the piano, there's any amount of online tutorials or YouTube videos to do that. This was back in the day when there wasn't, and you had to really go looking to learn those things. And then the other thing is, when you created this new business model that didn't exist at the time, I think that's really important for us to remember, that you were really innovating here pulling this out of your mind you weren't there was no business model books there was none of this kind of stuff that's available on the web today to kind of spark the idea this was a need you identified and you went after and as you said you invested every penny yes and i guess it was only when we got to to launch the product at in san francisco we found there were two other companies 
in the world, one in uh, Southern California, the other in Seattle. The one in Seattle later, uh, Photodisc was bought by Getty Images, and uh, the one in Southern California was bought by, by Bill Gates. So we were the first three companies in the world in this space, and it was a really exciting time. And uh, I guess the creative community really loved the fact that we had great quality. We, had, uh, we understood all of the sort of uh, competencies that were needed to create this this product, and um, you know we'd made a pretty a pretty good brand, and uh, it, it it worked pretty well. What I can see from the outside, obviously, is you, you know first you'd you'd been instilled with these leadership gifts from your parents, and the 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 entrepreneurial drive and the the appetite for risk, I suppose, and for craft and quality. But what would you pass on? knowledge on to entrepreneurs today because you know you you really went after quality and you didn't go i'm going to build a company and sell it you went i'm going to build an awesome company and it, that message seems to get muddied in the world of startups today well i suppose my father Patrick was the creative person my mother joan was the commercial one in our family and thankfully i inherited both of their genes but um what i learned is that you can't really afford to be indulgent You've got to be agile. You've got to learn the lessons pretty fast. I mean, it was great to have a good idea, but I mean, hunch isn't enough. You've got to go out there and test it very fast. And we did that with the Stockwhite business. That helped us give us confidence to go and bet the house on it, really. But I suppose there's a lot of dark days in entrepreneurship, and 95% of entrepreneurial startups fail. You've just got to push yourself very hard and believe in what you're doing and just keep your head up and not fall in love with investment or your title or falling in love with PR for your company. The important thing is to talk to customers, see what you can really do for them, see how you can change their lives. And, you know, as a photographer starting Stockbite, uh, I thought it was really terrible that, that photography was inaccessible, that good photography was inaccessible, and that as somebody who knew the game, I could actually make great pictures available all over the world for a fair price. Uh, and make a few bob into the bargain, and that you know that that's pretty much how it worked out. Um, yeah. But I think the uh, uh, you know having a great team around me, a team of young people who were committed, who believed in me, and travelled all over the world and showed people how it was done. Yeah, that piece you called out, Jerry, is really important. The piece of the dark days, because oftentimes the team is sheltered from that, and it's you who's taken all the burden. You're, it's you're the one that is to pay the wages, and it's you the one who's not paying yourself. How do you recommend people deal with those kind of things? We had a great saying in Stockbite that a crisis was a pile of bodies and anything else really wasn't. It was something that we had to stand back <laughs> and deal with. There were lots of crazy situations. A lot of the people couldn't cut it. Most of them did. But, I mean, you put yourself in very extreme situations all over the world with crazy deadlines. I mean, the amount of all-nighters uh, myself and some of the senior team pulled and make a deadline because if you missed a deadline by one day, you missed the whole season of launching a product because the catalogs had to be printed in Italy. They had to get to make a sailing to get to uh, the States and, and elsewhere in the world. And every hour counts at a certain point. So you've really got to, to live up to your promise, I suppose, and had a really good relationship with our partners all over the world. And I was the only CEO in the industry who went to see all of them, either at conferences or in their own countries. And I think that eyeball-to-eyeball trust uh, that we built was a critical part of the business. People respected the fact that we had really high standards. We didn't take shortcuts. And when we launched something, we did it really well. We did a great job on the pictures, and we supported our partners well. We pushed them hard. We were tough but fair in our commercial dealings. And that was effectively our trademark. And 
you know, I still have a lot of great friendships all over the world with all those people who represented our brand. That piece you said about the, the getting out there and looking in the eyeballs and shaking hands and pressing the flesh, that's another piece that seems to get lost in this increasingly digital world where people think an email will do that. And that piece gets lost quite a bit in, in the sales part in particular because you're essentially buying from people at the end of the day. And any advice on that? Because I see this time and time again where startups are, are young people who get investment and then it goes to their head and then they're attending all the startup events with each other instead of doing what you did and getting out and meeting their customers. Yeah, I suppose being part of a community is, is really important as well. I think there's an awful lot to be said for peer learning. But I suppose the reality at the end of the day, I mean, you get you, you learn the most from your customers. And I think by having that respect, by earning their respect and listening to them, you know, it's a, it, it just matters so much. I mean, it helps you define what your, your product is about. It helps you define your story. And I think it, it really underlines the integrity of a company when you have those, those personal relationships. Because, you know, in every business, you've got to shift, uh, you've got to pivot, uh, and you've got to find exactly where the sweet spot is, whether that's in product or in pricing or marketing or whatever else. And we had those great relationships. We were very lucky. I mean, eventually we got to deal with some, some great companies like, like Getty Images, who are wonderful people to work with, great collections of very, very talented people. And they knew we were the a small startup from Ireland that had grown up. You've got to try and cover as a startup the fact that you are a small company and that you are accountable. And particularly as CEO, I think you've got to make yourself the person who's accountable and that you're going to make promises that you're not going to break. In every one of our physical products that we shipped, we had a little card where they sent it back and it was, tell Jerry Canali, the founder, exactly what you think about this product and why you bought it. Those postcards landed on my desk every morning. It was so old style, it wasn't digital, but... Uh, I really found a lot of learnings from that process and often called people up and if someone wasn't happy, I would offer them their money back or offer them some alternative and that was very rare. But we made ourselves accountable to customers and a lot of the time, people hide. It just kind of ties together nicely with your family and the way you were brought up, I suppose, and that really human aspect of of the family because you were brought up in a family which was a startup (laughs) in itself, but... You, you know, your parents' influence seems to have just absolutely been through your business from day one. But moving on, because, you know, you, you were acquired in, in a very successful acquisition. What happened then? Because I suppose to tell our audience, what does an acquiring company look for? This is something that's often overlooked is how do I need to position myself if that's going to happen? And what are they going to look at? Because one thing that really stands out to me is, is that really human touch and customer care? And it reminds me kind of Amazon buying Zappos, and they did so nearly for their customer care as much as the product. And any thoughts on that, Jerry? Yeah, I, I suppose what really motivated the buyers for stock, I think, I think was ultimately because of the fact that we, you know, we built a great library of images. We built a great system for creating images. We created some of the highest value images in the world that were produced at a very compelling cost. And we effectively became a sort of a kingmaker at a time where people needed growth. The idea that it was time to get out was the fact that other companies in the space were very overvalued and it was effectively a bubble. But I guess really, ultimately, it's about the numbers. Uh, shareholders aren't going to uh, give you a big chunk of money unless you're going to uh, to be accretive pretty quickly. And we provided each of the, the three bidders for Stockbite with uh, an integrated P&L of how Stockbite would look if integrated with their with their company. So we... We try to get into their shoes and understand what it was all about, and uh, the numbers stacked up. 
That's really interesting. Some people wouldn't go to that bother. They go, here's my business. And it's almost like sales. It's like listening to your customer. And you did the same actually with the acquirer. I love that. I never knew that was part of the story. We produced a 64-page uh, memorandum and it basically was customized to each of the partners. We proved to them how we could sustainably run this business, how we could add value to them and how they, the sales of, of, of everything we created was absolutely solid and uh, our standards were different from everybody else in the marketplace. They had a very good idea of this already, but I mean, uh, I think to actually uh, prove it to them in, in, uh, in black and white was a big factor, uh, you know, and it didn't even take a meeting with Getty or the eventual, eventual buyer. We had uh, numerous conference calls with uh, Jonathan Klein, the CEO, and, uh, and his team, uh, but uh, we never met during the sale process. At that point, I think, you know, we were pretty much a proven success in the business but i mean we knew i mean that it was it was coming time to uh, to get out i mean in terms of the the valuations were going to drop and valuations in the industry did drop considerably uh, after that time getting moved a significant portion of their their business to ireland uh, unfortunately they didn't keep the stock fight business on in truly but i mean it's it's been a good uh, success story for ireland inc it's a, one of the big digital i suppose acquisitions over the past 10, 20 years. And for our audience who are in startups or, or look to you and kind of go, I want to do that. How does it feel, right, Jerry? So you've done that, you, you know, you're a few fist pumps in the air, pumping the fist in the air afterwards, you've done it. But what happens next after you've successfully exited a company like that? What what, are, what, are, what did you do in the interim before we'll get on to Tweak and, and how you started that business and you rolled the dice again? But what, what was the next steps in your life? Yeah, I suppose it, I took a little bit of time to reflect and got involved in some not-for-profits, got involved in setting up the Kennelly Archive, which is the largest collection of, of historical pictures in Ireland, by the work of my parents, and uh, brought out a book which was uh, launched by my father before he died. also got involved in some entrepreneurship programs. We had a second and third level program. We had a, a not-for-profit accelerator called Endeavour. Those companies are worth about 150 million now, and we wanted to do it for the companies and share a lot of knowledge. People like Liam Casey and Patrick and John Collison, and a lot of other great Irish entrepreneurs like David Walsh gave their time to that. You know, it was great to be in it for the right reasons and not necessarily for the money. But eventually, we we came around to thinking that the best place to spend resources in terms of education was in primary school, and that's where the the Junior Entrepreneur Program came about. I'd love to talk about that before we go on and talk about Tweak because that very much comes across, Jerry, and I've had the pleasure of sitting down for a coffee with you. You very much have that mindset of paying it forward and it's a win-win scenario. You get that feel from you. And, you know, the Junior Entrepreneurship Program really resonated with me when I saw it because, you know, you had your brain formed and your mindset formed from a young age. And there's no doubt that that's part of your, probably everything to do with your success because you had the human element, you had the, the thinking, you had the appetite for risk, you had the understanding of finances, all those things from a young age. And in this world today, we're seeing less and less of that with kids where we're making it easier for kids, where we're depriving them of the opportunity to learn and learn resilience and learn how to fail. And that failing's okay as long as you get back up and you get back in your bike and you go again. And I'd just love to tell our audience about the Junior Entrepreneurship Program because that is so essential in this world where you're teaching them these skills that they're not getting in in the real world. Yeah, well, I guess the thing is, it's difficult for, for children now because, you know, we, we had a lot of life experience growing up. My generation always had Saturday and, and summer jobs 
So you learned a lot of stuff. You had a lot of experience by doing. And there's very little of that today. So, you know, you're in primary school, suddenly you're in secondary school, you're making decisions about your future. And you're doing it all in a vacuum because you don't really know. And I guess a lot of uh, sort of uh, post-famine parents, if, if I could call them that, want to do their best by their children. They want to give them a better life than they had, which is an admirable thing. Uh, but I suppose they're also, I suppose to a certain extent, not really aware of, of the career opportunities that are, that are going to exist five or six years down the road. And they're pushing them sometimes towards the professions in accountancy and law and other areas. And, uh, you know, that's that's all great. But, I mean, I guess the purpose of the Junior Entrepreneur Program is to open the eyes of 11- and 12-year-old children to themselves and to let them understand where their strengths are, let them understand how great they can be, let them understand what it feels like to turn their own idea into something real, to invest their own money, five or ten euros, and get it back with profit uh, three months later, and to go through all the hardship of creating a startup in the classroom. That's why we do it. That's why we spend our time helping these children uh, discover themselves. The teachers in the program tell us that their children are very different after it and that they're, they're more confident, they're better communicators. All of their core subjects like maths and English and so on are, are improved dramatically because they're now looking at maths with their own money involved. Uh, so they take, they take it a lot more seriously. But, you know, I've spent a bit of time on the road talking to the children who've, who've created these projects. And it really is inspiring to see uh, young people expressing themselves. And I think all that needs to happen is that we facilitate and their teachers and their, and their principals facilitate them in being creative and in, and in being individuals turning, turning their ideas into something. It's so important. And, and just, I suppose, Jerry, to, to let our audience know, it's because most of the audience of the Innovation Show is the US and, and Australia and Canada. So they wouldn't know about this program. And uh, what I would really love to, to get, and one of the reasons I reach out is that if there's some learnings that can be taken and somebody might set up something in a local com- country, you know, in San Fran or New York or somewhere like that, it would be fantastic. But it would be great to tell them about how it works. How does the junior entrepreneurship work from a, yeah. a functional level? Okay, so the program is a is a 12 to 16 week program. It's offered free to schools all over the island of Ireland. So we've we've created a, a classroom kit that the teacher uses to to run the program, and it brings them through every step. So they learn about entrepreneurship. They meet a local entrepreneur. The children use some uh, some games to discover their own skills. They then uh, start uh, proposing ideas. Every child gets the opportunity to, to pitch an idea. Uh, they refi- refine those ideas. They have a, a Meet the Dragon session where local business people and others come along to help advise them on, on, their, uh, on, on the ideas and the practicality and, and so on. Then they start on market research. They look at pricing. They look at colors. They look at how men and women will look at, at, at the product when they make it. They look at their margins. They look at sourcing materials. And then they either it may be a service uh, or it, it could be a product. Uh, they create the product. Uh, they invest their own money. They sell it sometimes at a, at a show, a school showcase day, or they may take uh, what they've made and sell it through local stores and supermarkets. But you know, it's a real, it's a real lesson, and uh, they they're very much aware of the the commercial aspects of of this. They you know, sometimes uh, pupils talk to me about. Uh, quality control problems, so they're really uh, they really suffer in terms of having to 
to do to give people their money back or redo something and they learn all the practical painful lessons that startups going through the valley of death uh, get to experience and Jerry from a a school perspective how how did they get involved do they reach out to the website or how does that work yeah the, the schools uh, uh, get involved by reaching out to, to us at uh, juniorentrepreneur.ie and sign up for the program we're now signing up for the the 2018 program which is starting effectively in October and that's how they sign up. It's, uh, it's free of charge to schools in, in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, Republic of Ireland. Uh, we've got a little pilot program running in, in London. And um, I guess that's the process. 40,000 children have uh, have uh, created the uh, businesses on the program since it started uh, seven years ago. Sales by the children this year were €320,000. Profits were about 230000 So it's a uh, it's not insignificant. Uh, it's not about the money, of course, but I guess it's helping change society for the better. It's helping children to think about themselves in a different way and to think that there are, are other options in life. I mean, when they're when they're making a decision for the future, I think they might th- think back to the experience they had when they were 11 or 12 and the kind of buzz that they got out of that start, start up in a classroom. Yeah, it'd be great to, to see you know, in 10, 20 years' time, some of these uh, young entrepreneurs actually going through and making it and going, you know what, that's that's what made the difference because these are lessons they're just not learning in school today because, you know, something we've covered on the show before in recent weeks is the lack of flexibility in the education system to equip kids for, for the future that's ahead. And as you said, there's jobs coming down the line. None of us know what they're going to be because artificial intelligence, disruption, digital, is going to change the market, the job marketplace. And a lot of jobs that we saw as really important in the past, like finance and consulting and stuff like that, are going to be disrupted massively. And if kids aren't able to have the resilience to adapt and the skills to adapt, they're going to actually be defunct in that future world. Absolutely. I think they do need to be equipped. And it's not just, I mean, the concept of a job itself may be completely outdated by the time some of these children uh, get into the marketplace. Uh, you know, the gig economy is, is a lot more dominant uh, than, than the job economy right now, I think. And, uh, you know, unlike uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, this you're, you're now in competition with everyone all over the world and economies where costs are a lot lower than, than they are in Ireland. So, uh, you know, it's, there's never been greater or more fierce competition uh, in the world today. But ultimately, uh, it's back to craft. It's back to talent. And I think people who are, who are really highly skilled uh, on a global basis uh, will ha- will really have great fun and uh, and, um, and and will have a successful uh, career and can always uh, turn it around. If you're not really competent, if you're not if you're not really uh, at world class. Uh, then you would probably suffer somewhere along the road. And this brings us nicely, actually, to your mind of the, the Wayne Gretzky quote of skating to where the puck is going, not where it is today. And you, you mentioned stuff like the gig economy, because you seem to have a feel for what's coming next. And, you know, we, we, I'm jumping back to where you said, you know, you, you left uh, after Stockbite and then you took some time to reflect and you, you started a lot of the seeds in this uh, in philanthropy, essentially. But then you went and you rolled the dice again because you had that entrepreneurial itch that you just couldn't scratch. And that became Tweak.com. So I'd love to talk a bit about that, Jerry, if you would. Yeah, so we, we launched uh, Tweak in, in 2011. It was a it was a pretty extensive build. Uh, we'd uh, 
I suppose it's effectively doing for, for design what we've previously done with pictures, to make great design available, to give agency standard design to the masses at a really fair price. Um, so we uh, created this technology to allow people to edit design online and created a, a very significant library. We've got about 3 million pieces of graphic design, everything from brochures to flyers to large format display for 350 different businesses. We do that in seven languages. So there's, you know, we've created 21 million assets since that time uh, that are used by online print partners all over the world uh, in uh, Europe and South America and in the U.S. So it's, um, I guess, uh, you know, people think of print as a dead business. Print is a very dynamic business. It's a, it's a hundred billion dollar business out there, and uh, because of the fact that there are now online printers, uh, they've really changed the game. In terms of value for money, and print is very tactile and powerful in today's world. Some of our partners, like Flyer Alarm in Germany, for example, trade in, in uh, 15 countries uh, with the, the Tweak uh, product, offering the Tweak self-service design product. Um, and uh, you know, they ship something like 25,000 orders a day. Uh, so you know, that's a really successful company, and um, they're depending on the on, on the on the technology that's been made. Uh, here in Ireland uh, to run their business, and that's a great buzz. We've recently launched Tweak Cloud, which is uh, effectively brings that kind of technology into companies. So I suppose having worked around the the design and print business for many years, we can see a huge amount of wastage in marketing departments by double handling every time someone wants to make a change to any piece of design, either for digital or for print. Then uh, you've got a marketer talking to a creative. And uh, it's our thesis that uh, you can very easily separate the, the creative process from the marketing one. So you can create your design, put it into Tweet Cloud, make changes instantly. And you don't need to be a designer. It's all done uh, in, a, in a web browser. And this cuts significant costs. I mean, when a, a changes are made to a, a, a piece of design, it often costs hundreds of dollars. And that's uh, we take that right out of the game. And uh, uh, allow companies to take control of all their own digital assets. Uh, it's, I think it's really important that companies have everything under their, their own control. Um, lots of times uh, people and companies lose these, these assets. They're, they're sitting on somebody's hard drive and it crashes or they're in the designer's uh, Dropbox and uh, the designer has left. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, they're, they're really important assets of a company and I believe that they should be under the control and of, of the company. So every kind of asset that you can have can be put in a repository and shared with your marketing teams or your foreign uh, distributors, as well as, as, as making faster marketing execution saves a lot of money. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it seems to be another... Another uh, one of your Midas touches. So, uh, Jerry, it's been a pleasure talking to Jerry Canelli, CEO and founder of Tweak.com. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, Eden.